Welcome to the Progressing Lives Everywhere podcast, brought to you by Moria Bond. Christmas and New Year tends to be a time when many businesses encourage charitable giving. But is once a year really the best way for businesses to make a difference? In this special feature episode of the podcast, I'm going to explore how businesses can give back and make a difference to help progress the lives of those less fortunate, how they can partner with non-profit organizations and charities in a more sustainable way. I'll be sharing insights on how businesses can define meaningful and achievable CSR commitments that align with their own values and employees, whilst also having an authentic and sustainable social impact. To do this, I'll be showcasing three of the amazing organizations the Amoria Bond Charitable Trust has partnered with over the last 10 years. By sharing my conversations with their founders, I hope this will inspire other businesses, regardless of their type or size, to take positive action and create more of these partnerships to progress lives everywhere. Hi, I'm Daniel Dorr, one of the founders of Amoria Bond. When my co-founders and I set up the company, we wanted to instill a culture of giving back and of sharing the wealth right from day one. So we set up the Amoria Bond Charitable Trust back in 2009. 10 years of supporting projects and we've learned a lot and I want to share this to encourage other businesses to move corporate social responsibility and charitable giving really up the corporate agenda because business can play a really important role in shaping a better future. So how do you get started? I think that's about understanding the benefits to the business and also about choosing the right cause or the right partner. And I discussed this with Natasha Crump, an advisor to Amoria Bond's board on our strategic programs, as well as lead on our CSR program. Hi, Natasha. Hi, Daniel. So why should CSR and charitable giving be a priority to business? Well, to start off with, it's the right thing to do. You know, the human reason is that it's simply something businesses should be doing. In reality, there are also benefits for business. And actually, CSR, demonstrable CSR and social value can really help a business to thrive and grow. And so what are some of those business benefits? I get the human case. That's something I think everyone involved in the Amoribon Charitable Trust has, has always been driven by. But there are also business benefits. So can we be a bit more specific about what those might be? Yeah, absolutely. There's actually so much research and evidence that's been done, particularly over recent years, And it all shows that companies who demonstrate a strong social purpose gain significant competitive advantage. And they're also consistently the ones that are coming out top in the fight for talent. So Universum, for example, have an annual most attractive employers report. And that shows year on year that it's the socially conscious employers who employees are gravitating towards. Reports like the Deloitte Global Millennial Survey of 2020 shows that for the majority of working professionals now, it can be the deciding factor in where they choose to work. And that's becoming even more important with 
new generations, millennials in particular. So talent attraction, engagement and retention is just one area. There's a brilliant paper that Deloitte did a couple of years ago called Social Purpose and Value Creation, the Business Returns of Social Impact. And that report, for anyone who's interested, really clearly and simply articulates the kind of six key areas that businesses can reap benefits from delivering effective corporate social responsibility and social value programmes. Give me an overview of what those six areas are, please. Yeah, sure. So it's a range of things. I won't go into all of them, but, you know, from risk mitigation to really important one, brand differentiation, something I learned recently, a whopping 90% of us now are prepared to switch a brand or supplier in order to support a good cause. It's becoming that important in our social consciousness. And actually in 2020, there's so much evidence that collective social consciousness has really grown this year. And this year, more than ever, that kind of ability to dem- for brands to demonstrate their positive social value and impact has become even more important. And across both business-to-business and consumer sectors, brands who can do that have competitive advantage and their sales growth on average is four times bigger than comparable brands who don't have that same kind of track record and commitment. It's also another interesting stat for anyone out there who likes their stats like me. Around 70% of leading global CEOs believe that investments in social value and corporate social responsibility initiatives have given them a tangible commercial advantage, whether that be through new market opportunities or increased innovation. There's other areas that can really benefit your business as well in terms of capital access and market valuation can really help your business in terms of operational efficiency if the areas of corporate social responsibility that you invest in are are around kind of like sustainable and ethical supply chains um, and environmental kind of policies and that kind of thing. So there's a really, really vast array of ways that corporate giving, corporate social responsibility, it's not just the right thing to do, but actually is really good business sense. Okay, so what I've got from you there is, oh, it's going to help businesses attract the right talent, it's going to help differentiate their brand, it's going to help them effectively with with higher revenues and like you say, it's the right thing to do. Hi, I'm joined by Project Peru founder, Carol Hudson. Hi, Carol. Hi, Dan. Welcome to the Amoria Bond podcast. I'm just going to give the brief overview of Project Peru. It's a charity that's been run since 1992 by yourself and David. Carol and David fund and operate a children's refuge in Las Laderas. It's a part of the sprawling shanty towns on the outskirts of Lima. It's an area that I've been to many times myself. It's extremely impoverished. It's lacking in in sanitation and and basic infrastructure, and it's got lots of social problems. So tell me, Carol, and also for the listeners, why did you set the charity up and and what are the broad aims of of, of the Children's Refuge in Las Laderas, please? Well, first of all, thank you, Dan, for inviting us to do this. It's great to be able to reach other people with some of the ideas that inspired us to start Project Peru. So first of all, we were lucky enough many years ago to live in Peru. And of course, we soon became aware of the huge differences between those who have and those who don't have. And we decided that instead of just talking about that, we would try to set something up in the shanty towns of Lima. 
something that would be positive for all the people who lived there, or at least the ones who would be near the refuge that we founded. And we actually, through a series of amazing meetings and encounters and coming across different people, we suddenly realised that we could start the project because it's very important to understand a country, to be able to work with the country, to speak the language, to understand how it works, and above all, to understand the people in order to start the project. So our aim was really to give children and adults hope and a chance. How many children do you have in the refuge at the moment, Carol? At the moment, we have about 50. But as I say, they come from extreme poverty. And our aim is to give them dignity and independence through education. That's the most important thing. And the same thing with the people who work with us, our Peruvian colleagues, and they're all Peruvian, that they too have a chance of independence and dignity through work. That's very important, I think. One of the things I've been most impressed about your setup out there is that it creates local employment. You employ Karina, who runs the project. You you employ several of the ladies who do the cooking. And it's a, it's a really kind of friendly community set up there. What, what are you most proud about in, in the time that you've been running the, the refuge? I think the main thing to say is that it's like a huge family. So we have Karina, who runs it, who we also met purely by chance, and we just knew it would work. And her childhood dream was to run a children's refuge. So that's been fulfilled. But we employ 22 people in all, some of them just for workshops, a gardener, somebody who cooks, house mothers who really do look after and love the children, a, a psychologist, a social worker. So we do have specific tasks that we deal with. And so people, we really ensure that people get food, clothes, shelter, education, health and loads of fun. And that's really important. I've enjoyed the fun, the, the football, the, the netball, the volleyball, the frisbee with all the kids when staying in the refuge. And like you say, it's a really special place. It's actually through the partnership with yourselves where you and, and some of your contacts and networks with Rosa and Michelle that made it possible for us to take Amoria Bond employees out and to work alongside the local building teams and to build the houses in Las Laderas, which has been a hugely rewarding partnership. And I wanted to ask you, what are the most important elements for you, Carol, in partnering with businesses or organisations? What do you need most from them? I can answer that in just one minute. I just wanted to say that we're, we're extremely proud of the education we've done. We've set up a library. We've got at least six students at university and some of them come and help in the refuge. You know, so they're at the moment, because of the COVID situation, some of them are living with us and helping the children with their virtual education. I think that makes a perfect circle and something that we're really proud of. As a founder on your side of the fence of a non-profit organisation, what are the most important factors and elements for you in partnering with business? The most important thing is that it's a, a mutually beneficial so that both sides uh, gain something from it. The people who are able to raise the money in businesses 
are able to enjoy themselves raising money for us and especially knowing that every penny that they raise will go to our project in Peru and to a specific project, whether it be seeds for the garden, books for the library, to pay for the psychologist, to help pay for the children's education in university, because in Peru, you pay for everything. However little or much money you have, you pay for everything. So that's one of the wonderful ways that business can help. For um, anyone listening that wants to be able to contribute in some way, what are maybe some of the future projects that are on a wish list for yourself, Carol, that, that, that you would would hope to try and do in keeping the development of the refuge going in, in future years? Gosh, Dan, there are so many, but one of them, there's, there's, there's environmental ones like our kitchen garden, more trees, more fruit, more vegetables, because that is vital for the children. And then there are things like solar panels and grey water. So that means you can use the water from the showers and things to water the gardens and things. So they people become more sustainable. I think this is absolutely vital, given especially that we're in the desert, great vast desert shanty towns of Lima. So I think those, those things are important. And also we would like, we have got a little piece of land and we would very much like to build a place for our older boys because we feel it's very important for them to have a place where they can be them. And bringing it also back to the education piece that you are most proud of, I guess any sponsorship through university, you know, that, that helps some of the older children, right, as they integrate back into the communities? That is very important. But also remember that we do have to pay for school as well, even though it's a state school, the only thing the state pays for is the teacher's salary. So we have to provide books, pencils, copy books, everything for the children. So that's vitally important. And also when people go to university, they need help with financing, otherwise they can't possibly go. And even if they do get a small grant, which there are very, very few, then it doesn't cover anything at all because they have no funds remember they come from families of extreme poverty as you know dan it's been an absolute pleasure talking with you thanks for joining us today um carol i just wanted to wish you and david all the best keep up the fantastic work you can rely on our support going into next year and uh, yeah we'll speak to you soon all right and thank you and Amoria Bond for all the wonderful and continuing help that you've given us. We really appreciate it. A huge gracias from all the Project Peru family. Thank you. My next guest is Christy Sperling, MBE. Christy's the founder and chief executive of Engage, a Manchester-based charity that gives young people at risk of educational or social exclusion, opportunities and skills to achieve their full potential. Working in partnerships with schools, Greater Manchester Police, Manchester City Council and other partners engage, provide targeted approaches to antisocial behaviour and educational exclusion through uh, mentoring, workshops, residential trips, um, all of been proven to impact the lives of the young people that Christy works with. He founded Engage in 2006 in response to his own experiences of, of educational exclusion. I think something that he's he's incredibly open about. I think 
you've even uh, authored a book on the subject, I believe, Christy. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. Yeah. So it's, an, it's, it's a pleasure to welcome you, Christy, onto the uh, podcast. Can you tell me a bit more about why you set up Engage and the work that you do? Yeah. Um, hi. Thanks for having me, Dan. Um, I think you've just um, kind of hinted a little bit about some of my background. I was adopted, grew up in a very small village in Cheshire um, and really stood out as a young person. Hated school, hated nursery, hated basically anything to do with being in a in a room with other, other young people, to be honest with you. And so I ended up getting kicked out of school age 14 and put into a residential unit for about two and a half, three years with some of the most broken and damaged young people you probably could ever imagine to meet in a house together. And so that kind of kick-started a bit of a downward spiral into kind of not really knowing what to do in my life when I um, left school and that kind of stuff. Um, and so the reason for setting up Engage really was to try and help young people not fall into some of the traps that I'd fallen into and to provide a way of them not kind of falling into some of the, um, the patterns of behaviour that I fell into. You know, what are the ways in which you do that, actively working with some of these young people? Um, what can they expect from your charity? So we've got a mobile youth bus, which is a, a small single-decker bus that we've converted into a mobile youth centre. We also run a youth centre in Burnage in Manchester. We go into schools and work with young people at risk of exclusion, doing either mentoring programmes or one-to-one work or assemblies. And we've also, um, in the holidays, we put on loads of different activities like residentials, holiday provision, holiday clubs, and that kind of stuff. So everything that we do is aimed at engaging young people in positive activities so that they're kind of kept occupied and, and steered away from negative behaviour. What kind of activities does that include? And I know that I've, seen, I've previously been involved through Amoria Bond Charitable Trust. We've given computer equipment. We've, we've helped with maybe DJ equipment. So it's kind of youth out, outreach work stuff. Is that right? Yeah, so it's it, it we'll use anything um, legal to try and engage with young people. So music provision. So in our centre, we've got a music room, arts and crafts room. And there's a bit of a, ca- a cafe in there. Um, we've got an IT suite and also a chill-out room. On the bus, there's Xboxes, Playstations, um, music equipment, um, TVs, and a little bit of a chill-out space to do small group work. Great stuff. How do you measure the impact that Engage has on on the lives of young people you work with? Because I would imagine it's quite difficult to, to really get that assessment yet we live in a, in, a, in a world where everything kind of has to be measured right and I guess you're you're responsible for some of the funding that you get to to prove that you're having the impact so how do you do that? There's a kind of a, a belief that for every pound that someone gives you you've got to be able to kind of explain away what the benefit of it is and I think as I'm sat here now talking to you Dan that there's things that people helped me with when I was in my teenage years that at the time I had no idea to be honest, I didn't even believe it half of what they were saying. I used to just think, oh, you're just, you're just trying to flannel me with stuff to try and get tick a box kind of stuff. But I'm sat here now talking to you because people invested time and energy in me. And I'm now a little bit older than I was a few years ago, 40, 46 now. And some of the stuff that people said to me really resonates now as a, you know, as a dad, as a, as a CEO of a charity, as a boss. So I think... One of the challenges that I find with youth work is that we always want an instant sort of a quick win. And I think that quite often with young people, because of the nature of them being young, you don't always see the benefits. So I've got examples of there's a, a young person that we worked with when she was 14. She's probably in her mid-20s now. I was told when, when, when I first met her that I'd hear her before I saw her because she was so loud and kind of overbearing and that kind of stuff. 
school were really struggling with her, but now she's just finished her master's. I'm not saying that I'm 100% responsible for her getting that master's, but we were part of her journey for part of her life where she needed it. And she's then gone on and, and achieved. And I think what we try and do is we try not to place too much emphasis on what's happening now, but we also try and think about what's going to happen in the future. That's an amazing story. Part of what we're trying to do with this podcast is to encourage businesses to create more active and sustainable partnerships with nonprofits and charities like Engage. So I'd like to understand maybe some of the most effective ways businesses have supported Engage over the years, aside maybe from, you know, the financial donations, which are critical, but there's, there's many different ways that I've experienced that, that you can actually support organisations. So, you know, what makes the most sense from you? How can businesses support you? I've, I've actually got three really quick examples of, pe- of people that have come along into our lives as a charity in the most unexpected way um, and given us something that we needed at the time, but it wasn't financial. The first one was about two years ago. We got online frauded out of £25,000. Yeah, I'll just I'll say that again. Online frauded out twenty five grand. Imagine how many sleepless nights that gave me. The basic problem was our IT systems and things that we didn't have in place. And it was things that, as a chief executive of a charity, that's a, a youth work charity, I wouldn't necessarily be expected to know or understand. It all happened. It was all very horrible. We had to do a lot of stuff to try and work out what had gone wrong. There's a an online retailer um, who I've kind of developed a relationship with. One of the co-founders has become a really close friend of mine. While this was all going on, I was chatting to him about what was happening. And he basically said, right, we'll, we'll get some of our guys to come and have a look at your IT systems. Um, we'll get someone to come to your offices. They'll come and look at everyone, all your all staff's computers. We'll work out a, a bit of a plan for how we could prevent this from happening again. This is stuff that we do day to day. You know, our, our fraud teams work on this stuff every day. It's kind of bread and butter to them. And then we'll also arrange for any staff or trustees that want to to come to our head off the, the offices in Salford Keys where all the tech people were based. And we'll give you some free training. So all of us got that free training. We got sort of an audit of what, what we needed to do to the point where now, I think, I mean, you're never 100% safe from it, but it'd be a lot harder for anyone to do that again. So that's the first one. And that was just as a result of me bumping into someone in a meeting in London, getting to know them because we both lived in the Northwest. And then we kind of developed a bit of a friendship. And from there, he's just someone who I can call on if I need that kind of support. And it would have cost us, if we'd have tried to kind of buy that off the shelf from someone, it probably would have cost us hundreds of pounds um, just because these guys were, I mean, he basically gave us his top two guys in the, in the organization who ran this stuff across the whole of the business. So then I met someone at a, it's like a Prince's Trust training event in London. Got chatting to someone because we were, again, we were both from Manchester kind of got friendly, met for a coffee when we got back to Manchester a few weeks later and then through some discussions and just conversation about how she could help us, she became a trustee. She was a trustee for probably about two and a half years, just off the back of a, a meeting in London where we were both laughing and joking because we were both from Manchester. And that's happened twice. There's a current trustee at the moment who's kind of second in command, does all our finance for us voluntarily. All the finance for the charity is done voluntarily. Um, so there's someone who worked at Fujitsu. I got to know her because she came and did a day community action work. She bought a team from Fujitsu um, and they came to the youth centre when we took it off the council and it was an absolute tip inside. And they came and basically helped clear all the junk out of the centre. And we got kind of chatting and then she's kind of said, is there any ways that we could get involved? And then off the back of that, she became a trustee. And then the last one, very quickly, just in, more recently, um, we've had a bit of a naming issue where someone's come up with a, a very similar name to our charity. And so we've, we've had to kind of try and send a bit of a warning over to them, basically. I and mean, we've basically had a legal firm that have done 
a couple of letters for us and helped to just advise us on what process we need to go through. And then another legal firm have told us about how we can prevent it from happening again. And that's all been done kind of pro bono. It's all support and guidance. But it would have cost me hundreds of pounds to have that, that support. And it's just people wanting to give a little bit back, but not necessarily saying, right, here's you know a thousand pounds to help you with a legal problem, but we'll give you our best people to help. In many ways, if, if you're providing expertise, true expertise, that is effectively some of the business services that you provide to the wider business and economy anyway, it's more valuable than the actual amount that you might charge for those. Because, you, you know, where do you go as a, as a CEO of a charity? You can't possibly know everything about everything you know, that you need to know right so some great examples there christy conscious of time so i guess probably the last question from me i know you're you're, you're continuously looking f- to find new ways to connect with and, and make a difference to the lives of young people can you tell me a bit about some of the projects you're, you're currently working on especially with a view to 2021 so that any businesses listening could maybe get a bit inspired and choose to support you the main thing that we're trying to launch at the, at the moment is we're trying to develop an online platform where young people can log in in school or youth centres or various places and there'll be like work for them to do that's kind of based around issues. So for example, if, if a young person's struggling with bullying or something, there'll be a lesson plan online that they could log into and they could sit and work through this lesson on bullying. It could be any, any issue that young people face. Not, I don't think it's a completely unique idea, but it's something that certainly I've never done before and technically... I don't have the skills in my team to, to make it happen. I've got the idea and I know I've got a rough idea of where I want it to land, but it's hard for me to work out how to get it into reality, really. So that's one kind of quite a tech piece of work that we're looking for. And so I guess an IT company or sort of an online provider to help us with. Um, I think we've got things like in the cafe, in the youth centre, we've got um, an IT room and we're looking at doing like intergenerational projects next year where young people and older people would kind of do online learning together so potentially getting younger people to show older people how to you know how to go on social media how to access different computer programs that kind of stuff to try and build relationships between some of the older people and then hopefully off that some stories will start to come out i always find speaking to older people have got some amazing stories and insights into life that we probably don't necessarily have to struggle with and it's just great to get put young people in that space great stuff two very worthy causes there thanks so much for joining me today christy keep up the great work and um, speak to you soon no problem thank you cheers my next guest is matt hill founder and chief environmental evangelist what a great job title of uh, of one tree planted an organization he started in 2014 with a very clear mission to make it simple for people to give back to the environment and create a healthier climate by planting trees. The organization scaled up rapidly. I think since planting 20,000 trees in their first year, Matt and the team at One Tree Planted have more than doubled the number of trees planted year on year, planting a whopping 4 million trees last year in 2019, creating jobs, building communities, and protecting habitats for biodiversity all around the world. So welcome, Matt. Yeah, thanks. Why did you set up uh, One Tree Planted? I set it up because I was in sustainable food packaging. I would always talk to companies and they were always a little bit price sensitive and saying to me they wish they could do more. And I would always throw it out to them. You can plant trees. People don't realize how important trees are to the environment. 
What's so special about trees? Well, I, so I say it's my six pillars. They help clean the air. They help with water quality. They help with biodiversity. They create jobs. They help with health and, and uh, sequestering carbon. So it's a touch point for somebody here or there, depending on you know what they are looking for. One of the, the I think the attractions of partnering with your organization was you make it so simple. It's it's one dollar plants a tree. And so you can really make a scalable difference by aligning it with different parts of the culture. So for instance, at Amoria Bond, for every customer survey we might get back, we say that we'll plant a tree for for every internal promotion that we have within the company to celebrate success, we plant 100 trees. For every new office that we open as we grow as a business, we plant 1,000 trees, right? But can $1 really plant a tree? How does that actually uh, boil down in, in terms of your organization there, Matt? Sure. I always tell people there's four significant costs to tree planting. The site preparation, so if there was an area that was affected from a forest fire, they're going in there cleaning the land so that the weeds have been taken out, you know, any type of like hazards might be taken away. Second big cost is to grow the tree at the nursery. Third cost is to put it in the ground. And then the fourth is the monitoring, making sure that the trees are surviving or going in weeding it, watering it, etc. So you can pretty much grow a tree anywhere in the world for around 50 cents, 60 cents, give or take. 10 to 15 cents to that tree planter to put it in the ground. So you're about 65 cents all in right there, but then you have the site prep and then the maintenance. So yes, we can make it for work, but in the UK, it's a lot more fragmented or let's just take Europe as a whole. Labor costs are higher. Maybe it's a little bit higher to grow the trees at the nursery. Maybe they need to be a little bit more mature. So what we'll do with that $1 is it's the catalyst to get the project started. So we call it co-blended financing. So one tree planter will say to an organization, we're going to give you $100,000, they get a grant match, and then they have some local regionalized unrestricted funding. And together, you know, it happens, it works. Brilliant. Do you actually get involved in selecting where you plant trees? So, you know, whether it's New Zealand or Australia or in the UK, you know, we pick and choose the projects. We have a projects team that vet through all the projects and we understand and look at the impact you know, their track record, what they've been doing. So when we provide the funding, it's helping them scale. But yeah, I'm involved with picking the projects because we'll get a donor, a business that says, hey, we're located in, you know, whatever country. Could you have something here? If we don't, we'll start looking at, you know, what partners are in that region, what type of work are they doing? And we'll say, hey, we have a donor where we can give you $50,000. How can this help you? How do you monitor some of those local partnerships then and how do you measure them in terms of the sustainability so projects team few of them with their masters in in forestry from yale school of forestry which is one of the leading schools here in in the us north america so we vet through the projects we send money in milestones so once it's been approved we'll send call it the first third to get things going and then as they're doing the the work we'll send them the second installment then the third installment afterwards and then they will have boots on the ground that have tablets or phones that will take pictures that will go back after the planting three months afterwards, one year afterwards, and then yearly to show like what percentage of these trees survived, you know, because it has to be a win-win across the board. No point in just having a big number go out a year later and find out only 10% of the trees are still there. So it's critical for everybody that these are successes. And then we're starting to look 
a lot at satellite monitoring so that, you know, we don't have to just rely on them on the ground. You know, we could kind of take satellite imagery and see everything that's happening. What kind of organizations do you like working with, Matt? I know that from looking on your site and from some of the partnership that you work with some massive global companies, Facebook and, you know, et cetera, et cetera. But most of the the listeners to this podcast will be very small businesses and micro businesses. And I don't want them to be put off just because they, they, they think they're too small to make a difference. So what are the most important elements from your perspective in choosing who to partner with? To me, I want to treat everybody equally. So whether you're an SME, and SMEs are my favorite, like somebody who's just starting their business is super passionate about making an impact, making a difference. But for them to spend the resources to start Googling and looking all over, like what's a great project in Brazil and, you know, having the time to speak to them, you know, and find out is this solid. They come to One Tree Planted and they're relying on us to making sure that there's a quality pipeline of projects. And if a small business owner, you know, there's no minimums to work with us. Yes, $1 plants a tree, but at the end of the year, you give us $80, you know, that's amazing because I always say collectively, we're making a difference. And that business owner can make the decision there on the spot where typically that week where we've got everything done and sending money to the ground. You know, yes, it's great to have those big companies that, you, you know, you can mention, but they take, you know, months and months, if not years to kind of get everything going. So what I say is collectively, we're planting a forest and I just say, you know, they're going to get the updates. And we've had small businesses that were growing that went from $80 per month and they're now giving, you know, way more than that because their business is growing and we are there to work with them at the beginning. Because to me, I look at things about long-term relationships. Let's um, inspire the people listening. Let's hit some big numbers. How, how many trees have you planted so far year on year across the organization? And maybe point out some of your goals for 2021, please, Matt. Sure. Like you said, when I first started this, it was me, myself and I, and we planted 20,000 trees and people thought I was a quack calling them saying, I'm going to give you guys money. And I'd fly out there and meet with them and understand the lay of the land. Then it was 50,000, then it was 100,000, then 300,000 trees. Then I think we went to 1.8 million trees. Then we went to, like you said, 4 million trees, and this year will be over 15 million trees in 2020. So I think in 2021, you know, despite these challenges, we'll probably do about 25 million trees next year. Our team's grown to 40 people on the team. It's a collective effort. You know, everybody just is so passionate what they're doing. To me, the important thing is quality projects. It's not a big number for me. I'm passionate about helping these small watersheds and organizations that are literally in tears when you give them a check for $2,000 to help them, their organization, because they often get overlooked. And a lot of our projects are maybe 25,000 tree projects to maybe 200,000 micro reforestation projects, helping you know, critical water, soil quality, creation of jobs. But big goals for 2021, a strong foundation with our CRM, great customer service team, satellite monitoring, so that when the donor calls in, we could send them a link and they could kind of zoom into anywhere around the world and really feel involved with the initiative. And they're along for the journey. You know, we're already doing that, but obviously we can always have continuous improvement, always be doing things better. But that's what I strive for. Matt, it's been an absolute pleasure having you on the podcast. Keep up the absolute great work. Just finally, what's the best way for anyone listening who wants to contribute to get in touch with you guys? Sure. Matt at OneTreePlanted.org. Happy to respond back to anybody shoots me an email. Uh, there's an 800 number on the website, great customer service team that can help people in any way. And I just say people can go out in their backyards and 
look for local watersheds and volunteer, help out. You know, it shouldn't be about money. There's a lot of work that's needed out there. Get your hands in the dirt and then you get inspired and, you know, things just develop from there. It's been great having you on. Like I say, keep up the, uh, the fantastic work, sir. All the best. Take care. Thank you. You too. Happy holidays. Let's say, for instance, that business has decided, yes, we're going to commit to this and a bit more. How do you go about choosing the right cause to back? There, there, there seems to be so many good causes out there. There's so much injustice in the world. So how do you reconcile that really with all these different priorities and passions and people are you know, passionate about this and that to agree you know, on the area that as a business you want to stand behind and support? Okay, so for me, Daniel, the best place to start is always by looking at your own company purpose, your vision and your values. What's important to you? What's important to the people who work for you? And then also consider your stakeholders. What is important to your clients, your suppliers? What makes sense for you to be supporting? Because what's really important is the causes that you look to partner with or the charities that you choose to partner with really important to make sure that their purpose, their values are aligned with your own and also with your key stakeholders externally as well. And I think once you've got those kind of parameters clear, it's about involving your employees, bringing them along the journey with you and really kind of giving everybody within your business as far as possible kind of skin in the game really in terms of identifying the right causes to support choosing your charitable partners and being really part of that journey to really partner with those organizations to make it successful and something that really engages your staff. Great. And once you've chosen a suitable cause or organization to partner with, what are some of the most effective ways you've seen that work really well to engage employees with those initiatives? So I'll keep coming back to the same theme. It really is about engaging employees from the start in whatever it is that you're doing. So, for example, in Amoria Bond, to help increase the amount of engagement that Amoria Bond employees have within the corporate social responsibility agenda, we've started rolling out CSR committees, introducing those into some of the offices, and that's working really well. That's basically giving employees the opportunity to choose what's important to them in their local community. And it's something that, you know, as well as the longer term company wide initiatives that Amoria Bond run and partner with the likes of Project Peru and One Tree Giving, it really allows employees to really shape what it is locally that they're going to support and to identify those for themselves and to come up with their own ideas of how they want to get involved and really gets them along as part of the process. What's really important is and most effective is not just asking for money so for companies to think about how can they facilitate ways to get employees involved with the initiatives that they're running so for example a really really brilliant initiative that we ran within Amoria Bond in the summer of 2020 was the AB Active Challenge it was a time when long-term partners Project Peru had come to us and I identified a real need within their children's refuge that they run over there. They had no funds coming in, were in the middle of lockdown, and extreme poverty was even more extreme than ever before. And they had real, real need. 
So we thought about what can we do, but we identified, we recognized the fact that actually, you know, our own employees are having tough circumstances at the moment. People were in lockdown, different states are kind of like social isolation and that kind of stuff because of the COVID pandemic. So we were kind of really reluctant to just ask employees for cash. So we came up with the idea of the ABA Active Initiative, which was basically a challenge company-wide across all of our locations to come together and the company sponsored every single kilometre to try and get working together to cover the equivalent of the land border of Peru, which is 7,460 long one kilometres. Employees could do it however they wanted, walk it, run it, swim it, skate it, however they wanted to do it. They could involve their family members, their flatmates, you know, friends. Loads of people got involved. It was an incredibly successful initiative. People still talk about it now. I was with some of the teams um, last week and they're still buzzing about it. They're still asking, when can we do it? When can we do it? And it actually created a really good sense of togetherness at a time when the teams were were feeling quite isolated. You know, they, they weren't in the offices together. So the teams really benefited. They're still talking about it. And they, we raised over £8,000 towards this amazing charity who, you know, we've been supporting as a business for a long, long time now. Great. Thanks so much for sharing those insights, Natasha. And keep up the great work with the CSR programme. Thanks, Daniel. I hope listening to this podcast has inspired you and given some practical ideas and takeaways on how you and your business can make meaningful action in a way that engages your people and has a lasting impact to make a positive change in the world and to progress lives everywhere. Thanks to our featured charities, that's Carol Hudson of Project Peru, Christy Sperling at Engage, and Matt Hill at One Tree Planted. If you want to find out more about any of those charities, then check out the podcast notes where you'll find details of the websites and contact details. Thanks for listening.